Well, the whole Bible tells of two kingdoms that are in conflict. Sometime last year, I, I taught a sermon on Genesis 3.15. And I highlighted in that sermon how the Bible from its very beginning has really just been an exposition of that verse. And just by way of summary, Genesis 3.15 has the promise of God putting enmity between two rival lines in the human race. There is enmity placed between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that is, there would be perpetual conflict between the spiritual offspring of Satan, those who are unbelievers, and the chosen seed of God's children. Until one would arise as the consummate seed of the woman to bruise the serpent's head and destroy his kingdom. That's the story of the Bible. And we know this seed from the woman, this ultimate chosen one, was the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been manifested in history, and by, who by His person and work has defeated Satan and sin and death. And He's been advancing His kingdom through redeeming a people for Himself ever since, through the ages, from the nations. And He will someday consummate that kingdom in its full manifestation. And that's what we have here in the book of Revelation. It's the consummation of the kingdom. It's our blessed hope. And as we'll see today and also in the sermons to come, the book portrays Jesus as the one who is the king on offense. He is on offense. That's important to see in the battle. He's the one who is advancing in history. And it's, it's unfortunate that the book often gets taught in a way that makes it sound like the opposite. Often you hear that Revelation is about Satan and his kingdom being the ones who are advancing with such intensity. And there's playing into people's fears and getting ready for the intensity to come. And that sort of becomes central in people's minds. And while it is true that Satan's kingdom will be permitted to have its greatest severity and its greatest domination in history, what we'll see in the book of Revelation is that all of that is just one last-ditch effort from someone who is losing the battle. I want that to be in your minds when you think of Revelation. All that Satan is doing is his last-ditch effort. And the way I want to compare it, it's sort of like watching a movie and you have a hero and you have a villain. There's many that follow the same plot line. The, the villain starts in the movie with some imposing presence, a demonstration of power. And usually the villain has composure and craftiness. But as the story goes on and the hero or protagonist in the story is withstanding the various schemes and in the climax of the movie, when there's the greatest struggle between the two, you start to see a change in the villain. And the villain's composure starts to dwindle. And you start to see this frustration building up. This even greater unleashing of the best power he's got. Now, when you see that part of a film, you don't think to yourself, this is the strongest point for this villain. You see desperation. In other words, you don't see the villain's frustration and loss of composure as a sign of strength, but rather you see it as a sign of weakness because he knows his plans are foiled. That is the picture of Satan in the book of Revelation. There are specific verses that hint at this in the book. There's verses that describe Satan as being hurled to the earth with wrath because he knows his time is short. And it portrays Jesus with wrath because his time has come. Total contrast. Jesus on offense. Satan on desperate defense. 
Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Gates are defensive. The kingdom advances. The whole book of Revelation, as we've sort of talked about, is, is a call to persevere in this great kingdom conflict. It's a call for the saints in every age to overcome and to patiently endure until He comes. And we saw months ago that Christ's words to the seven churches of Revelation involved not only an evaluation of their spiritual state, but in each address He gives to the churches, He gives an exhortation and a call to overcome. And more literally, to conquer. And the idea is that Jesus is mobilizing His troops age after age for this great ongoing conflict. The saints are called by the King to conquer. And as we'll see, the the conquering of the saints in the kingdom of Christ is unlike the kingdoms of this world who conquer. It's an interesting, ironic play. The kingdoms of this world conquer through force and through coercion and through violence and with the sword and with fearful tactics and government oppression and lawlessness to achieve their conquest. But when the veil is lifted in Revelation... What we see is that the conquest of the kingdom of Christ is a radical, subversive conquering through patient endurance and through the witness of the Gospel and even through possible martyrdom. Things that no earthly kingdom would lift up and say this is the way to advance. That's how Christ advanced. That is the call of King Jesus to His people and that is His call to us. The people in every age, the saints, are to patiently endure persecution and the world's hostility and leave vengeance to the Lord. And what, that is what church history really is. Generation after generation of Christians praying, Your kingdom come, and waiting for the day that He will subdue His enemies under His feet and display His perfect justice. Now, I want us to consider how Revelation unveils this promised vengeance is coming. This promised vengeance is coming. And like I said, you can't really read through Revelation without seeing the theme of wrath interwoven over and over throughout the battlefield that's laid out in the book. The wrath of the Lamb is seen repeatedly. In fact, It's seen even before we even get to Satan and his forces on the earth. And I I think that's on purpose. For again, I, I think that in this unveiling in the book, Satan and his forces are not central in the apocalypse. The book is chiefly not an unveiling of antichrist forces. The apocalypse of Revelation is chiefly and centrally the revelation of the victorious Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start where everything begins. It all begins with Jesus, the Lamb Himself. Because He is the one who initiates the whole final chapter of history. The last battle. It begins with the wrath of the Lamb. Last time we looked at chapter 5 and saw that Jesus is presently reigning. And I'm going to give a way of review with that because it it sets in motion the whole book. It's important at the outset to know in Revelation that Jesus is on His throne. Jesus not only will reign, Jesus is reigning. And, And not just in a spiritual sense, like in the hearts of believers. But Jesus is reigning over history, over leaders, over nations, over catastrophes. He has history under His sovereign rule. And He's been directing the course of human history to all of His appointed ends. And that's what we saw last time in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Jesus is portrayed as the only one who is worthy, the worthy Lamb who at His ascension 
received from the Father the total authority to direct the rest of history to its close. And we considered last time that he's been directing history for the last 2,000 plus years. This is not something we're waiting for. It's now. It's live. And he will continue to direct all things until he comes. And what heaven is doing is they're waiting for that moment when the scroll is going to be opened. This is what John's audience needed to remember. Remember, they're being persecuted in the Roman Empire, and they needed to know who was on the throne. The Lord Jesus Christ, not Caesar. And we need to remember that as well. This is the key to seeing the rest of the book in motion. The Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving all power and all authority on heaven and on earth. And once we have the reigning Christ and the present reality of the kingdom fixed in our minds, the rest of the book of Revelation just flows from there. And the rest of the book reminds us that there is more yet to come in His kingdom program. Don't lose sight that the kingdom is already. But on the same token, don't lose sight that it is not yet. I'm thankful there's more to come. It's not yet in its fullness. It's not in its consummation. After revealing heaven's scene, the remainder of Revelation lifts the veil of history even further and shows us that this Lamb who is seated with all authority with the Father will someday wage His last battle. His final advances. And He will someday gather from the nations the very last number of His elect. Someone's going to be the final one. It's interesting to think about. He will make a return to this world in glory. And He will judge the living and the dead. As one old saying goes, He once stood trial before men, but soon all men will stand trial before Him. After chapter 5, the remainder of Revelation is about the Lamb bringing history to its end. And you recall in chapter 5 that He received from the Father a scroll or a book. And it's sealed. And no one has seen inside this book. And no one was found worthy to open it. And we consider that this was the title deed to the earth. Whoever possesses this book puts a close to human history. And when no one is found to open it, John's weeping like a baby because no one is going to be able to bring a consummation to this kingdom that they're suffering for. But then Jesus steps in. Jesus the Lamb takes the scroll. He is worthy to bring it to its appointed end. And having received the scroll, chapter 6 begins with the Lamb taking off the seven seals. And it's supposed to make us pause and go, what's about to go down here? The seven seals that no one could open or look into are about to be opened. At this point in the book, we are looking forward to the not yet. What will follow is the rest of the book to its conclusion. I just want to read the first phrase of chapter 6 if you're open there. Verse 1. Look at what John writes. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. I'm going to pause there. I know you want to keep going. I want to pause there because I want us to feel the gravity of what's going on in heaven at this moment. There is gravity in this moment, not only because Jesus is about to unfold the, the end of the age, but because He is about to take on the vengeance that has been promised through the ages what we need to remember is that in taking and breaking open this divine plan, Jesus is the active agent of not only redeeming the rest of His elect, but also in exercising the wrath of God. 
If you remember in chapter 4, when God the Father is shown in His throne in all His holiness and splendor, John saw in the midst of the throne a storm that was brewing. And there's lightning, flashes of lightning and peals of thunder proceeding from the throne. And the idea there was that God has been patiently sitting on this throne through the ages as Satan and the world have defied Him generation after generation. And He has been holding back a brewing storm of vengeance. And it's coming for the world. And as 2 Peter 3 says, He is not slack concerning His promise. As some count slackness. He is long-suffering. He's waiting for all to come to repentance. But the day of judgment will come like a thief. And that long window of patience is going to come to an end. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, in approaching this throne and being worthy to reign alongside the Father, He has full authority over the plan And the storm of wrath that's been brewing with the Father is now the Lord Jesus Christ's storm to possess. It's His storm brewing. That's the gravity here. He will be the one to unleash the wrath of God that is accumulated through history. And being God Himself, the unleashed wrath will be rightly acknowledged in the book as the wrath of the Lamb. Rather delving into each open seal in this chapter, I'm going to touch on them and focus a little bit more on some than others. I simply want to just give a survey of the judgments that follow from the breaking of these seals and how they sort of unfold the rest of the judgments in the book. As Jesus breaks the seals in this vision, what any reader is immediately struck by with these broken seals is that His judgments are unleashed on the earth. They're sometimes called the seal judgments. The seal judgments. And what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is sort of summarize what's in the seals. And you could try to follow along, but I'm going to be going a little fast so you can read. By the time you get to each one, I'll be on the next one. But you can jot it down and look it up later. I want to read off the seals, what's inside of them. And I want to just kind of put this note out there. I'm not going to be making exact interpretations of each one and getting bogged in the details. Um, we're, we're starting to venture into territory in Revelation where there are admittedly a lot of different perspectives in the history of the church. Many able theologians have looked at the same verses and come to very different thoughts So I'm going to have some pause so that 20 years from now, when I look back at this message, I'm not cringing too much. I'm going to pull out the the main big ideas in these verses and just read them off. And what I want you to do is, as I read them off, just feel the weightiness of what's in these judgments. Because even if you can't interpret every single detail, they are weighty. In chapter 6, when the seals are broken off, each one unleashes a force upon the earth. So here it is. The first four are commonly known as the four horsemen. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Horses throughout Scripture in the ancient world were often symbols of strength and speed and conquest. And so they're coming with intensity upon the earth. The first seal is broken, and there is the unleashing of a great conqueror, on the earth. A great conqueror. The second seal is broken and there is the unleashing of bloodshed through war on the earth. The third seal unleashes severe food shortages on the earth. The fourth seal unleashes widespread death of a fourth of the earth including death by the sword, famine, plague, and wild beasts. Now again, without specific interpretation, the reader can read this and see that what's going on here is something radically different than the way things are. 
In other words, you don't have to know exactly how those will all take shape in the time to come, but you can see that what the Lamb is doing is altering history. He's, with these forces, um, undoing all that's been held together up until the present moment. I want to camp on that idea for a second. He's undoing what's been held together. That's an important point to consider and often gets missed in looking in the judgments of Revelation. Prior to this, the Lamb has simply held the scroll. And He has held history together with many restraints as He's advanced His kingdom. There are restraints all over this fallen world keeping it from being the worst that it can be. That's by the restraints of God. We call these restraints common grace. Common grace. There is a measure of grace and restraint that the whole fallen earth has benefited from up until this present moment that Jesus peels these seals. Such restraints include the holding of all things together in the natural world. God holds together everything. And even though there's catastrophes and things going wrong, everything is kept together so that the human race is preserved. And many who survive still have an opportunity to repent. Uh, It's held together with rain and harvest, with sunshine and civilizations reaping from the earth. These are all graces from God. There's also the restraint of God right now to retain a measure of our image-bearing qualities. These weren't completely lost at the fall. Many have been allowed to enjoy the benefits of having some level of dominion over the earth. Civilizations have been allowed to build and to innovate, to even have some measure of control over the things that threaten them from nature, including protection from the elements. Remedies for disease. These are God's common grace. He's restraining the fall from its full effects. People have also enjoyed since the time of the beginning um, dominion over the animal realm. You remember back in Genesis 6 in the Noahic Covenant, God says to Noah, I'm going to put the fear of you into these animals and there will be food for you. This, too, is something preserved from the original design for our protection. There's also the restraint of governments. As imperfect as they are, civil governments have been used by God on the earth to restrain the full force of violence, and it sort of puts a check on the full expression of evil in this world. All of these restraints are in the present time. Their common grace held together by God. But now I want you to see what's happening in the book. When the time of this comes, Jesus is going to loosen the restraints. He's going to unleash the disastrous results when He's not holding everyone together in common grace. Governments become more reckless in their conquest and widespread bloodshed. Creation succumbs to massive destruction, including food supplies and harvest and burning. Disease spreads so rapidly that people can't keep it under control. Even wild beasts in our passage are seen to be killing humans, which again highlights that restraints are being loosened and tables are being turned. Sinful man's time to subdue the earth is expiring. And now this earth is subduing sinful man. He's altering history with these seals. That's the big picture. Continuing in the chapter, the fifth seal is broken. I mean, that's all bad enough. We're on number, number five. Number five. It's a little different. This one reveals martyrdom. Martyrdom. In fact, it's, it's so, it sort of reinforces the whole theme of this vengeance that I'd like to read the verses about the fifth seal. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The idea in this verse is that these judgments have been a long time coming. In opening this part of the scroll, the Lamb is making known that He is fully aware of the wickedness that has been executed through the ages through persecutors upon God's people. All who patiently endured. All who were thrown to the beasts in the Colosseums. All who were killed in prison camps. They will all be avenged. They are the apple of His eye and they're not forgotten. The Lamb has been redeeming from the earth the full number of His elect. And that's the reason that is given to rest a little longer. There's more to come. That should get us a little pump in in our evangelism. There's more to be saved. As long as we're breathing and these seals are not broken, there's more yet to be saved. There's testimonies to be made. It could be next door to us. It could be in our town. It could be in our families. The full number is being recorded until the time when He will gather the final harvest and bring the awaited judgment on their enemies. The sixth seal continues and unleashes a terrible earthquake and there's, there's language given there that communicates some kind of astronomical disturbances. The greatness of these judgments from the Lamb, the bottom line here, is that they're expressed um, as being these unleashing forces that no one can stop. No one can stop the scroll from being opened. And the irony is found in the last verses, starting in verse 15, when it mentions the other kings who were so powerful on the earth. Look at verse 15 to the end. It kind of sounds like Psalm 2. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These verses are packed with irony. Because as these great ones in the earth who have caused God's people through the ages to flee from city to city and to hide in underground churches and the like, these ones who have caused such terror to the church are now going to be the ones who themselves are fleeing and hiding. It's the great day of reckoning. And they acknowledge a throne more supreme than their own. Not only God the Father, not God Almighty the Father, they recognize Jesus Christ, the wrath of the Lamb. All they can simply ask in the end of verse 17 is, who can stand? Who can stand? I'm going to make a U-turn to that question at the end of this sermon shortly because it's packed with more significance than you think. Now, you would think that would all be enough. These seal judgments, that's the end of the age. But, even, but notice the seventh seal is still on hold. We haven't gotten to the seventh seal. So the seventh seal is broken off in chapter 8. And when it opens, round 2 is revealed with seven trumpet judgments. 
the trumpet judgments. And these trumpets are blown by angels. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just summarize the trumpet judgments, not going one by one like I just did with the seals. But I want us to feel the weight again. That there's, It's going to intensify. In chapter 8, round 2 is opened. And the Lamb's forces are going to be unleashed on the world again, still undoing more and more restraints. The trumpet judgments seem to intensify what was seen in the seals. Here's what they include. They include the destruction of much of the planet's plant life. They include the death of much of the world's aquatic life. These judgments include the darkening of the sun and the moon. These judgments include some kind of demonic attacks that torment the world. There's even mention of a demonic-like army that kills a third of humanity. And you think all that was bad. Well, the seventh trumpet is also put on hold. The seventh trumpet is also saved for later in the book. When the seventh trumpet goes off, it unleashes what are called the bowl judgments or the vials. And seven angels are given seven bowls of God's fury to pour onto the earth. The the bowls are poured out in chapter 16. If you want to jot it down, look it up later. The bowl judgments um, are going to be summarized as well. These final judgments include painful sores afflicting humanity. They include the death of every living thing in the sea. They include descriptions of rivers turning to blood. Intensification of the sun's heat and the sores getting worse. Great darkness. The advance of a global army. And a devastating earthquake followed by giant hailstones. Now I just want you to note, all I've done is just read what's in the texts. I haven't made interpretations haven't explained what it's going to look like. All of these judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, all of these are set in motion by the initiation of the Lamb. I simply just summarize what they say. There are theologians who take the descriptions of these judgments in many different ways. Uh, Many even debate on the order of them. Are they successive, like we just said, or are they more cyclical, like describing the same set over and over? There's lots of different debate about that. Some of the judgments seem very literal and straightforward, like earthquakes. Some are layered in more apocalyptic language. Some are somewhere in between, leaving us guessing. For example, when it describes the astronomical disturbances in the sky, it describes it as stars falling to the earth. There are some scholars who see that and they want to see something very specific falling to the earth, that maybe it's meteorites or something falling to the earth. Others would say that maybe it's just describing a a dramatic change that's going to alter the world. I don't think we can totally know what this is all going to look like. I I suspect um, it's all going to go down in a way that none of us could have imagined. The one thing I will say, though, is sort of just a um, pastoral thought. In glancing over these judgments, one bottom line we can say is that we need to be aware of a spirit of unbelief regarding these things. Beware of a spirit of unbelief. It's one thing to humbly sit before these passages and acknowledge their difficulty. But it's another thing to dismiss them and just sort of have a cavalier attitude. Oh, it's apocalyptic language. It's not going to look like that. Uh, apocalyptic language, it's not going to be like that. Uh, there's scholars that do that, and that makes me wary. Have you read your Old Testament? Don't. Put it above God to do exactly what he's describing here. God has many times brought literal judgments that seemed bizarre at the time. Still seem bizarre looking back at them. 
He literally darkened the sun. He literally turned rivers to blood. He's literally caused fire to rain down on cities. God is not above sending earthquakes in the Old Testament. He sent pestilence. He sent armies as His judgments. He literally sent a supernatural global flood. All that to say, we may not know the full extent of these judgments in Revelation, but we know the God of Scripture. And one thing we can say is that whatever happens is certainly not going to be less severe than what's described. Not going to be less severe. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, for, when, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. The bottom line is that when one reads these judgments unleashed on the earth, one can't help but note that they are some of the most intense devastations in history. And it's all from the Lamb. And they're all completely just. Turn with me quickly to chapter 16. I want you to see a description that's given in the midst of these judgments in case anyone has questions on the severity of this. Chapter 16 in the book. This is in the midst of the bold judgments, the intense ones. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 5, as one of the severe judgments is poured out, one of the angels decides to extol the justice of God in these judgments. Look at verses 5-7. through Read with me. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is what the world deserves. This is what we would deserve were it not for the mercy of God. And in case you're also doubting humanity and you're thinking of your neighbors and you're thinking of people that seem like common, decent citizens going through these things, I want to remind you that as the restraints are moved in the world, the restraints of human depravity are also being removed. If you go down to around verse 11, it says that as a result of these, people are not repenting. They continue to curse God and it says they would not repent of their deeds. Really? Sores and all of these things happening. And they curse God. Because man is totally depraved. The Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be completely justified in all of this. And the idea is no one's going to stand at that last day and say, it's a little harsh. He's going to look perfectly just. And not only this, He will be praised. The Lamb will be marveled at. And ultimately, He will be marveled at in physical manifestation because the climax of all of these is that He will return at the end of the story to reveal His ultimate judgment on the world scene. And He will sit on the great white throne judgment. And all judgment from the Father will be given to Him, as He says in the Gospel of John. And the ultimate judgment for the ungodly will be the consignment of everlasting torment in the lake of fire. In chapter 14, just you could jot it down and look it up later, it even describes the torment of those who will be consigned there. And it says that they will be tormented and the smoke of their torment will go up forever in the presence of the Lamb. Why does he keep getting called a Lamb with all this judgment? 
This is sort of a central feature of apocalyptic literature. Uh, What is revealed is often not what you would expect when the veil is lifted. And the idea here is is that the curtain is being drawn and what you would expect a lamb to be is totally not the case here. At one time, it was the case with Jesus as a lamb. A lamb is a weak and vulnerable creature. And at one time, Jesus did lay down His life as a slaughtered lamb. And then the curtain came down on history and people have looked back at Jesus of Nazareth who died on that cross, a carpenter long forgotten. But now the curtain is being put up. The veil is lifted, which is what apocalypse means. It's unveiling. And this, what the whole world will see is that there's more to this lamb than the world ever thought. Because now he is the lion-hearted lamb claiming his world. It's a great myth that in the Old Testament you have Yahweh who's severe and deadly, and in the New Testament you have, you know, cordial and nice and compassionate and kind Jesus. That's a wrong picture of the Godhead. Here in Revelation, we see that Jesus, the Lamb who once laid down His life, He is Yahweh. He is the one who assumes the role of vengeance. And the window of grace that has been through the last couple thousand years is unique in history, but even that will come to a close. In fact, it gives me more assurance of the validity of Scripture that you see the Old Testament and all this Sin's ugliness and blood and war and judgments. And you see this window of grace since the cross and that you see the same God has not changed once the window starts closing. It's, it's the Yahweh we've always known. And it is Christ. The wrath of the Lamb. As God's common grace is based on His patience and is dwindling in these judgments, the idea is that the patience of God is beginning to dwindle. And as divine forbearance comes to an end in history, the remaining time forces a final ultimatum upon the rest of humanity who is living. Which kingdom will you serve? That's the question the book wants to put in your face. Which kingdom will you serve? The days of normalcy will be over. There will be no more time for long-term investments and planning long-term commitments in this world. The sand of the hourglass will be in its last grains of sand. And everyone on earth will be forced to decide who will they serve. Will they give allegiance to King Jesus? Or will they go all in for the world system of Satan? The next time I teach, next month, I'll be teaching about how the book presents the two kingdoms in the great conflict and the response of different people to that ultimatum. Because that's where the book is going. Two rival kingdoms, the, the loose ends of Scripture coming together, two sides, and there will be conflict. And there will be those who align with the Lamb as His army, conquering through His blood. And there will be those who align with the kingdom of Satan and He will mobilize His own forces. That's part two next time. If you remember, I I did mention that I would circle back to a question that was asked at the end of chapter 6 from the great ones of the earth. At the end of chapter 6, you recall as they're hiding and fleeing, they ask this question that lingers. Who can stand? Who can stand? This is one of those moments where chapter breaks in the Bible do a little bit of a disservice for us. Because that question is not meant to be isolated. And next time we're going to consider where chapter 7 picks up. Because the question becomes answered as chapter 7 continues with the spiritual army who will be able to stand. The spiritual army raised up by the Lamb, and it includes redeemed Israel 
and it includes a remnant from every nation. They will stand. They will conquer through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And Satan will have a last-ditch effort as he mobilizes his own forces to frustrate what is already his impending defeat. I'd like to end on that cliffhanger, but I feel compelled pastorally to give a few words of application. Plus, I I want to because it's spoken to my own soul preparing this. This is a few points that I considered from this study of the wrath of the Lamb. It's a, a daunting topic, but it does have practical considerations for you and I. So I'd like to just go through Uh, Four points of application, just really quickly, from considering the wrath of the Lamb. Number one, leave vengeance to the Lord. I know we know that, but leave vengeance to the Lord. Not just in your actions, but in your attitude. We know how the church is going to be treated We know there are people who are hostile to the faith and the things we believe, whether in government, whether in society. What if we just had the attitude, we trust God. The Lamb is going to take care of it. He's on it. He has the scroll. This isn't a surprise. Beware in your heart of any ambitions that ever stem from your own personal need for vindication from defending your honor in this world. Jesus taught we will be wronged. We will be reviled. We will be harassed. We may even be killed. Revelation reminds us to patiently endure because the Lamb has got this. Number two, as I was thinking about this, beware in your heart of a love for this present world. I don't mean enjoying the benefits of this world and enjoying common grace. I don't mean love for people. What I mean is a love for the world that doesn't seek first the kingdom of God. Elevating God's gifts above the giver. Because all that is in this life really is fleeting. and It's going to be a a small mini footnote of a footnote of a footnote of divine history. Devote yourself chiefly to the things of the kingdom. Flee idolatry in your life. Don't be worldly minded. Have your eyes on eternity. Because it's coming fast. Revelation is an optimistic book about the kingdom of God. By the same token, remember, it is a pessimistic book with regard to the world system. So I just want to kind of take that note and say, don't put your faith in the world system. Don't put your faith in governments. Don't put your faith in the next election, however it'll turn out. Always have your hope on the city to come, on the Lamb. Number three, point of application. Warn people about the wrath of the Lamb. Warn people about the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I admit that's a a difficult application, but I can't help but think as I was considering this, it would be wrong if that didn't make it into the applications of studying the wrath of the Lamb. We must not present a one-sided Jesus to those we witness to. I'm not saying we have to go through the book of Revelation and show all these judgments to our unbelievers that we know. What I'm saying is that we we shouldn't diminish the fact that there is judgment. And there is urgency for people to turn and repent. And it is the Lord who saves. Who knows whether the Lord will save if you just warn one more soul. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And number four, lastly, as I was thinking about this, embrace your side in the battle. Embrace your side in the battle. Just as I mentioned that the the wrath of the Lamb gives this ultimatum to the world on which kingdom they will serve, 
it also gives an ultimatum to the reader in every age of the church. What side are you on? Like, what side are you really on? I know that most in this room, we would say, we're on the side of King Jesus. I don't just mean what side. I want to know where your heart is. Don't walk the fence. Beware of trying to keep your feet sometimes on both sides of the line of battle. In our interactions with people, yes, we need to be courteous in our interactions. Yes, we need to be patient and compassionate. And you know, don't be a jerk for the gospel. Don't cause people to be angry because of you. But at the same time, beware of lacking firmness when friction does present itself. Go all in for Jesus, even if you have to patiently endure to the wind with what people think. If they call us a fanatic, what did they call Noah? What did they call the prophets? What did they call Jesus? Join the long line of those on this side. Take up your cross. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Let's pray. Father, as we close and as we think upon these things, they are sobering realities that you will judge this world in righteousness, that you have fixed a day to have justice, that you have appointed Christ who is ascended and who is Lord to bring to a close history. This causes us to rejoice. It causes us to feel a sense of glory that what we have ahead of us is the reign of Christ in this world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to to hasten that coming, to to preach the gospel, to, to be about your business. Would you mobilize us and help us to overcome? Would you help us to live um, warning others of the wrath that is to come? And Lord, may, may it cause us to cling even more to this blessed and worthy Lamb who was slain for us. And we pray this In his name, amen.